The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. In this series, we've looked at, uh, we're going to look at five different psalms. Week one, Jeremy taught us through Psalm 1. It was a wisdom psalm. And then last week, we looked at Psalm 32. It was a psalm of thanksgiving. Today, we're going to be in Psalm 88. This is a psalm of lament. A lament is a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. Kind of a formalized, passionate expression of grief and sorrow. And honestly, all kidding aside, I I do want to be honest that the 88th Psalm is hard. Even the content of today's message is going to be difficult. It can be kind of a downer. You know, generically speaking, when we look at the book of Psalms, there's 150 books in the, in the, 150 chapters in the book of Psalms. 60% 60% of those books deal with praise and, and victory and celebration. 40% of those deal with like pain and struggle, difficult things. They're psalms of lament, roughly speaking, generically speaking, about 40% of the psalms. That's like 60 chapters in this book deal with pain. But, you know, if you look at kind of how we tend to worship in the American culture, even if you look at more traditional church settings, whether it be like a formalized high church liturgical setting or more of like a hymnal church that uses hymnals, uh, there's been studies of this. In upwards, uh, 85% or higher of the content of the worship is praise and victory and triumph, when only 15% or less in those settings deals with pain or struggle or expressions of lament. If you look at more our tradition, we're more of a contemporary worship sort of church. So if you look at like top uh, 100 Christian radio, top 100 worship songs right now through CCLI, it's, it's much worse. It's like less than 10 of the top 100 songs deal honestly with issues of lament and pain and struggle. Our expressions of worship in, in kind of the contemporary Christian evangelical context tend to be devoid of expressions of sorrow or grief. I think we love to preach and to teach and to think and to sing about, as Jerry, Jeremy Neff has been calling it, victorious triumphalism, which is fine. That's a big part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, but that's not all that there is. And as a result, we don't often give space and place in our gatherings or even in our church cultures uh, to address and deal with and walk through the reality of sorrow and loss. I wrote in my notes here that preaching pain is not a prescription for growing a megachurch. <laughs> It's kind of a downer, (laughs) but it's a reality for the people of God. So it seems as if lament is an underdeveloped spiritual muscle for most Christians. And yet, as we all know, it's a reality for each and every one of us. Every believer goes through seasons of challenge and difficulty, seasons where they feel called to lament before the Lord. Um, And we need to know how to do it. We need to know how to turn our face to God in seasons of sorrow. And so today, as we look at this psalm of lament, I'm encouraging you to look down at Psalm 88. Now listen, of the 40% of the psalms that are, that are lament, none is darker than this psalm. Maybe Psalm 39. But 39 and 88, are the, they call, I've heard Psalm 88 called the darkest corner of the Psalter, meaning it's the darkest, most difficult psalm to read out of all of them. And so, let's... Let's thumb through. Let's read it in its entirety. You're going to notice that the final word of the psalm is the word darkness. Most psalms of lament end with like a positive note, like, but God, I trust in your character, but God, you've been victorious in the past, and so I'm going to anchor my hope in that. This psalm doesn't end on an uptick. So let's read it, and then we'll unpack it. Psalm 88. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. 
Let my prayer come before you, incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit. In the regions dark and deep, your wrath lies heavy upon me. You overshadow me with all your waves. Selah. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Yet every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Selah. Your steadfast love is declared in the grave. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Amen. Now, First time I read that psalm, I kind of went, it's the Bible? It doesn't seem to paint a very flowery picture of God here. Why in the world would God allow that in the scriptures? Is there any hope at all in this thing? Maybe you feel the same way. If you look at the structure of the psalm, you know, it ends with the word darkness. Three times and three places in the psalm, it's kind of in verse 1 and ver- verse 2 and in Verse 13, we hear the psalmist crying out to God or calling out to God, seemingly getting no response back. Three times in the psalm, we we see the word darkness or darkness is mentioned. And that seems to be the theme of the psalm. In this pain to prayer, the petitioner is calling out to God again and again, and all he receives back from his perspective is darkness. Heavy. But I think there's something more for us to have. There's There's a reason why God has included this in the scriptures, and I think there's something for us in it today. So let's look at it honestly, but first, would you join me in prayer? God, I'm thankful for the privilege and the opportunity you give us today to gather in this place, to sit under this word. And God, we know that, God, you have included Psalm 88 in our Bibles. It is inspired. It is your word. It has authority. God, would you give us eyes today to see what it is you want us to see in these words? God, would you, especially today, draw near those in our presence who are in the midst of a season of lament, and God, would you reveal yourself to them today in a powerful way. God, we love you. We ask you to meet us in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. 
I went, when I first began to walk with Jesus, I was in my early 20s. My wife and I just got married. I, I knew Jesus, but I didn't really start growing until then. And, and in this kind of initial phase of my new Christian life, there was like this mind-blowing recognition of God. It was exciting. It was, it was enthralling. There was this season of discovery. I was, I was recognizing God's presence in, my life, presence in my life in ways I never had before. And everything was just new and exciting, and there was this growing sense of awe in my mind and in my heart, and in this sense of innocence, in this kind of new birth in my life, and God was becoming bigger, I was becoming smaller, and that was awesome. And I had a sense of purpose in my life, and I was growing, and there was joy in the pursuit. And then after a season, I entered into what I would call like the second sort of phase of my Christian life. Some have called this the life of discipleship. And this was where I just couldn't get enough. I was sitting under sound teaching in a, in a church that preached the Bible. I was reading authors. I was growing. I was consuming everything, absorbing everything that I could absorb. I really felt like I found my place in the church and I had a place to belong. There was community around me. I was energized with the idea that we in the church were a part of something bigger and greater and, and, and grander than ourselves. Uh, we were together fighting for the truth, and there was this sort of simplistic certainty and security in my faith. And then I kind of moved into this phase of my Christian life, some called the productive life. And that's about the time I pursued, I was a teacher for four years, I pursued vocational ministry. Felt that's what God was calling me to. And some dumb church in Wisconsin hired me, and they never should have, but they hired me and they got me. Totally underqualified, totally immature, but whatever. I talked my way in. I got this job. Super excited about this job. It was, it was this time in my life where I was ready to do stuff for God. I was ready for it to be my vocation. I wanted, to work, I wanted God to be my CEO, and I wanted to work for him in really exciting ways. And I, I had this vision. I was a youth pastor for just high school students in this little town in, in central Wisconsin called Wapaka. And I just wanted to start a movement for God. I had these visions in my mind of, of sitting around a campfire, of us strumming songs and singing. Though I couldn't grow facial hair at the time, I was hoping to be able to one day grow a goatee because that's like the universal sign of all youth pastors ever. And I wanted a goatee. I wanted kids gathered around the fire. I had this just honestly, I mean, when, when a church said they would pay me to do ministry, I would, have, I would have walked across 40 miles of glass with bare feet because I was so excited to be used by God. Couldn't believe I was going to get to be able to do it as a living. And so I entered into this, this new job, excited, got an office, which was sweet, had a gross flea-infested couch in my office, like every youth pastor in America ever. And I was hanging up pictures in my office, and I shared this with you about a year ago, when my senior pastor walks in about one month into the, into the, into the new gig, and he, he lets me know that a 17-year-old kid in my youth ministry was out drinking and driving the night before, and he had hit him, a gentleman on a bicycle and had decapitated him and killed him, and he fled from the scene and the police found him trying to drown himself in a lake before they arrested him. And I was told to go down to the jail and meet with this kid. This was not the vision I had for ministry. And as the days and weeks and months and years unfolded, it was one moment and encounter and season after another that I was not prepared to deal with. It was the disillusion of marriages from people who were in leadership in the church. I couldn't connect the dots. Like, how could people who love Jesus go through divorce? I didn't have space for that. It was finding out that one of our uh, men who was just about ready to become an elder had systematically sexually abused his nieces for years and years and years. Young ladies from my church who I loved watched him go to prison. It was sitting with a family who, whose five-and-a-half-hour infant passed away in their arms, not knowing what in the world to do with that place. It was walking alongside a family whose 11-year-old daughter was ejected in a rollover accident and killed on the side of the road and trying to figure out how in the world do I minister to a family who is gnashing their teeth dealing with grief I can't even begin to comprehend. 
It was watching a senior pastor of our church slip into moral failure and shred the church apart and watch us bleed people, bleed money, bleed character, defame the name of Jesus in our community. It was all that over and over. And I found that the sort of victorious triumphalism that I had been taught, sort of the Kool-Aid of church growth that I had been drinking of toxic positivity that was obsessed with pragmatism and, and happiness and, 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 and over-promising and under-delivering, it just it was hollow. The messages we were preaching on Sunday didn't have much bearing for what I was experiencing in the lives of our people Monday through Saturday. Thank God there was a wise man who was an associate pastor at that church. He never served as a senior pastor his entire life, but he had such a profound impact on me. His name was Gary Strike. And he put his arm around me, and he would talk to me about the reality of the world and the reality of what it means to walk with God in this world. He talked to me about his own life. Gary shared with me what it was like to, to fight in Vietnam and to fight cancer that Agent Orange had caused in his body. He talked to me about what it was like to walk through a years-long battle with clinical depression. He talked to me about what it was like to raise kids who then turned away from the faith and went wayward. He talked to me about what it was like to be in a challenging marriage and have tendencies towards addiction and put yourself under leadership that had no morality that you could believe in. He talked to me about dark night of the soul that Christians go through. He prepared me for it. Gary used to say all the time that forewarned is forearmed. And he warned me that in this life, there will be trouble. And when you experience pain in this life, Paul, he said, it's not God assaulting you. It's not God abandoning you. It's a reality of life on this side of glory. In fact, it's in those seasons that you're going to encounter God in ways that you never would have had the pain never happened. And so Gary taught me and he taught my wife over the course of, a, of, of years of mentorship that in the Christian life there will be pain and that pain is not the enemy. Forewarned is forearmed. And, you know, as a pastor, I've walked with families through the seasons. But then, you know, when those, when those tragedies, when those afflictions came and rested on my front door, I was hurt. It was awful. I gnashed my teeth. I beat my chest. I cried out to God, but I wasn't shocked. Gary had prepared me that this was a reality. In four years, our family, like your family, has had to endure losses, and it's a part of life on this side of heaven. Difficulties, seasons of depression, seasons of death, Seasons with difficult losses. We've journeyed through times of, of sorrow and darkness. And I'm so very grateful for God that he put Gary Strike in my life to prepare us for this reality. Now, I know you know what pain is, church. I know that. Some of you more than others. But I know that it's to be human is to know pain. I get that. And I know that probably many of you in this room, like me, have grappled with some of those questions that always come up. Why would a good God allow bad things to happen to people he loves? You've, like me, tried to reconcile the goodness of God and the victory of Jesus with the cruelty of this world. Like me, many of you in this room have had to journey with God through seasons of death, maybe even suicidal ideation. You've had to journey with God through seasons of, of dark depression, and you've had to confront and walk through the valley of the shadow of death during seasons of difficult losses. Many of you have endured losses so profound that words cannot even describe your grief. And if your experience has been at all like mine, my guess is there has been times where you found the counsel from your Christian friends to be a little bit unhelpful. I know I have, if I'm just honest. My guess is there have been Christian friends who went, met well, who loved you, but who offered counsel that wasn't helpful, similar to Job's friends. They offer quick little Christian phrases and bumper stickers that are meant well, and there's truth behind them. 
But it's not necessarily what they say. It's their unwillingness to enter and sit with you in the pain that makes it more difficult. When someone tells you to trust God and then they go on their way, it's hard to receive that counsel. When someone says, let go and let God, yeah, they're right. But I'm alone here. And my teeth are gnashing. When someone tells you to pray about it, you say, I don't have the words to pray. Could you stick around and pray for me? And they don't. It's hard. I get it. God won't give you more than he can handle. Well, this certainly feels like more than I can handle. And what happens is you find yourself all alone, crying out to God, begging him for help. And then at some point you find yourself wondering, like the psalmist today, God, do you hear me? Do the words I'm saying right now even matter? If you've ever been there, and some of you have been, you're in good company. Countless saints that have gone before you have been there. In fact, I make the argument that I think the saints that are worth their salt, the saints I want to be around, the saints I want to learn from are the saints that have walked through those seasons because they know God on a profoundly deep level. Their souls have enlarged through seasons of grief and loss, and I can learn from those people. I think of authors like Charles Spurgeon, who understands pain. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, pay attention, Christian. Jesus does not suffer so as to exclude your suffering. He bears a cross, not that you may escape the cross, but that you may endure it. Christ exempts you from sin, but not from sorrow. Remember that and expect to suffer. That's not the kind of preaching that grows a megachurch. C.S. Lewis said, I suggest, you, I suggest to you that it's because God loves us that he gives us the gift of suffering. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. You see, we are like blocks of stone out of which the sculpture carves and forms of men. The blows of his chisel, which hurt so much, are what make us perfect. And then St. John of the Cross, in his famous work, The Dark Night of the Soul, he writes, God leads us into the dark nights, or rather, God leads into the dark nights those whom he desires to purify from all imperfections so that he may bring them further onward. In other words, God allows suffering into our life. God leads us into suffering so that he may sanctify us into the saints he desires for us to be. It's a hard it's a hard reality to grapple with. But these sorts of Christians are the Christians I want to learn from. They're the Christians I want to be around. They have wisdom. I'm mindful. Jeremy reminded me of this this week, and I've shared this at funerals in the past. I'm reminded of this, this picture we have in John chapter 11, John's gospel. And you know the story. If you've been around the scriptures, the Lazarus dies. He's been in the tomb for a number of days. It's Martha and Mary's brother. Jesus is delayed in his return, and they're sorrowful because Lazarus has died. And they knew Jesus could have done something about it. So they're sort of angry at Jesus. Hey, Lord, if you'd only been here, you could have done something about our brother. Now he's dead. And, and Jesus talks to Mary and, and shares these incredible words. He says something to the effective for those who, who live in me and believe in me will never die. Do you believe this? There's talks about resurrection life. And, and then we know, because we know that God raised Lazarus from the dead, we know that he's going to raise him. And that the, he's going to say, Lazarus, come out of that tomb and wrapped in his linen cloths. Lazarus is going to walk out to the amazement of everybody there. And I want to get to that part of the story when I'm reading John 11. I want to get to the victory. I want to get to the triumph. I want to get to Lazarus alive after being dead for several days. But what does Jesus do when he arrives at the tomb? Do you remember? Shortest verse in all of Scripture. Two words. Do you remember what it is? Jesus wept. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't put a balm of victory over their pain, does he? He sits with these men and women who are lamenting the death of their friend, and he weeps with them. And then he has something to do in their presence that gives them resurrection hope. I think sometimes the reason we as brothers and sisters in Christ struggle to know how to help our friends who are suffering is we don't, we don't know what it looks like to weep with those who weep. 
And so church, can I make this observation before we get into the text? Can I make this observation that there are two types of people in the room today? There are those of you that are in a season of lament, and there are those of you that are not. And when I'm talking about lament and sorrow, you may say, Paul, this is the most depressing sermon I've ever heard in my entire life. Shut up and go home. Or could it be, if you're not going through a season of suffering today, could it be that God is wanting to work in your life and in your heart to lift up your eyes and look to your left and look to your right? And could it be that God is inviting you into the life of a brother or sister in Christ who you can weep with? to be present with them. You're going to see in our text that the psalmist, one of his great gripes against God is that all of my friends have abandoned me. What would it look like if we as a church sat with one another in our seasons of greatest grief and sorrow? Okay, all of this is a very long and wordy setup to us for us to work through the text. i got a few minutes here. So if you look at this psalms, over the course of 18 verses, he asks three questions and he makes a statement. And just kind of thematically in the psalm, the first question he asks that kind of flows from his, his affliction is he says, God, do you hear me? That's the title of my sermon. I think that's the major idea in the passage. God, do you hear me? He says it four different times and in three different places. I cry out day and night. Incline your ear to my cry. Verse 9, every day I call upon you, he says. Verse 3, but I, O oh Lord, cry to you. And if you look at the, the four different words, words that, that are meant to uh, that speak of the verbalization of the author, whether it's cry or call, there's four different Hebrew words that are used there. I found that so interesting. It's not the same word for cry, cry, cry. It's different words every time. In verse 1, the word for cry means to shriek. In verse 2, the word for cry means to shout loudly. In verse 9, the word for, for call upon means to accost a person met. In verse 13, the word for cry means to, to cry out or to shout for freedom. Please free me from this pain. And so the picture here is one of a desperate man shrieking in desperation for God's deliverance. It's not a one-time petition. It's an ongoing thing. How often does he do it? Well, the text tells us. Night and day. Verse 1. He does it every day. Verse 9. He does it in the morning. Verse 13. In other words, the picture that the psalm paints for us as we step back and look at it is that second by second, minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, around the clock, this man is wailing, he is shrieking, he is begging God to do something, to do anything about his suffering. And when he gets no answer back, he's left to wonder, God, do you even hear me? Jesus felt the same way. The Son of God sat in the silence of the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane as he hung on a cross. Do you remember his words? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cried out to heaven. All he got back was darkness and wrath. Could it be that Jesus was truly abandoned on the cross by God so that today as we sit in this place, you and I can know that we're not abandoned by God because of the grace we have through Christ? And so I think about the silence that we often receive when we call out to God in our most difficult moments and could it be that the silence that we receive in our prayer lives in seasons of lament, I mean, it's one way to interpret it is to say, yeah, God has given me a cold shoulder. He's turned his face from me. He, he's smiting me. That's one way to interpret silence. Could it be also that he's listening intently? Like Jesus weeping with his friends at the tomb of Lazarus. Could it be that he doesn't fill the space with words? He just laments with us and grieves with us as we cry out to him. One of my favorite authors, David Hansen, says that our, our prayers are the listening ear of God drawing words out of us. I like that picture. 
So we see this picture, that, this question, God, do you hear me? The second question, the, the psalmist is saying, God, why are you doing this to me? I mean, the language is all over the psalm. Verse 6, you have put me in the depths of the pit. Verse 7, your wrath lies heavy on me. Verse 8, you have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. My eye grows dim through sorrow, he says. There's this narrowing effect of pain that when we're suffering, all we can see is our pain. And all he can see is God causing this pain in his life. Verse 14, he says in a rhetorical question, Oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? So in his unrelenting pain, in time, this gentleman turns to accusation. God, you're doing this to me. I mean, it's one thing to say that God allows pain into the lives of others. You know, that question people always ask is, why does God allow bad things to happen to a good person? Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? But he's not saying that. He's saying, God, you didn't allow this. You've caused it. You're the primary actor in the pain that I'm feeling. It's so bad that he says to God, I am shut in so that I cannot escape. And so he's accusing God of casting his soul away, of hiding his face from him. His cries for help are seemingly going unanswered. He's left to blame God for his afflictions. God, why are you doing this to me? Third question he asks is another sort of sarcastic, a cynical, rhetorical question. He's basically saying, God, what good am I to you if I'm dead? Look at the center of the psalm, verses 10, 11, and 12. He asks these six rhetorical questions. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up and praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Is your faithfulness declared in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness? Is your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? What's interesting about that is he's mentioning the attributes of God that make him so praiseworthy. He is a wonder-working God. He's worthy of our praise. He is a God of steadfast love. He's a faithful God. His wonders are known and he receives praise because of his wonders. He is a righteous God, but, but the psalmist in his pain talks about the attributes of God and says, they're no good to me if I'm dead. If I'm dead, your wonderful deeds are no good. If I'm dead, how am I going to praise you? If I'm dead, how am I going to tell anybody about your love? If I'm destroyed, how am I going to proclaim your, your faithfulness? How will I speak of your wonderful deeds? If I'm destroyed, how am I going to talk to anybody about you being a righteous God? What good do you am I if I'm dead? Maybe he's facing real death. Maybe for him it's a disease or, or, or death at the hands of another. Or maybe he's just been so long in this season of darkness, he just wants to die. I just cannot live another day in this darkness, God. And he accuses God of never caring. Verse 15, he says, Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your tears. I'm helpless. God, you've never cared about me. As Timothy Keller points out, this guy is not saying, Father, thy will be done. He's saying, damn you. In other words, he's saying, God, you have never been there for me. So there's these questions, these accusing questions. God, do you hear me? God, why are you doing this to me? God, what good to you am I if I'm dead? And then his final statement is, is God, he's saying, all I see, everywhere I look, all I see is darkness. He depicts the darkness that he feels, and as he talks about it in verses 3 through 5 and verses 15 through 18, it just, it just feels so personal. I just see a guy who's heartbroken, and he's before God saying, why have you done this to me? My soul is full of troubles. My life draws near to Sheol. 
I'm counted among those who go down to the pit and so on and so forth. I have no strength. I'm among the dead. I'm in the grave. You remember me no more. Your wrath is upon me. Why do you assault me with your dreadful assaults that destroy me? You have caused this, God. You have caused this. My companions have become darkness. Ultimately, he ends the psalm by saying, Darkness, God, this darkness I'm feeling is a better friend than you. And notice again how he starts his prayer. Go back to the first words of the prayer. O Lord, God of my salvation. Isn't that interesting? For 17 and a half verses, he assaults God with his, with his pain. God doesn't smite him. God lets him bring it. But he addresses him as God of my salvation. So he, there's a sense that as he's petitioning God and all he's getting back is darkness and silence, that he recognizes his only hope is God. The one who will save him from this is still God. Even though he's being raw and, and, and just bare and, 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 and vulnerable and angry before God, he still says, you are the God of my salvation. I read in the Gospel Transformation Study Bible this week that proof of life in a despondent child of God is prayer. While this desperate psalmist frankly describes his sense of abandonment, he utters one petition in verse 2. Let my prayer come before you. Sometimes it's enough to be heard. What follows in this psalm is a list of emotions which indirectly form Heman's reasons for why God should answer him. So as dark and as messy and as raw as his prayer is, he's entrusting it all to God. There's no resolution, but he's entrusting the mess to God, which means that you and I can trust all the contents of our heart to God. He sees it anyways. So that's what we see. We see these three questions and this statement. God, do you even hear me? God, why are you doing this to me? God, what good to you am I if I'm dead? God, all I see is darkness. And that's how the psalm ends. It's a hard psalm to read. But we see some, some things in here that I think we can cling to. Can I make three observations from the psalm today? Three observations that I think are, 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 are embedded in this psalm that I think are helpful. The first one is this. Darkness descends upon the godly. I'm being Gary right now. I'm, I'm forewarned is forearmed. Well-meaning, Jesus-loving, godly, moral, faithful people can walk through debilitating seasons of darkness. Darkness can descend upon the godly. Christians can suffer through prolonged seasons of spiritual darkness. Doesn't mean you're being punished because Christ was punished for you. But Christians can walk through these seasons. Like I said, the first time I read this psalm, I thought, should this even be in the Bible? How, why would God allow this in the Bible? But he has. And if you look at the Bible as a whole, the Bible is filled with real people. That's what I love about the scriptures. There's only one perfect man. His name is Jesus. Everybody else is a screw-up just like me. So I feel comfort when I read the Scriptures. Real people. The, 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 the Scriptures show us the reality of life on this side of glory. Not only do we see people that sin and mess up and, and are filled with dysfunction, we see people going through seasons of loss and lament. The Bible shows us that people of faith can encounter darkness. I know it's a downer, but it's true. And embedded in that reality is just a tremendous grace to know this. To know that God's with us in that. And to get away from the rhetoric that we're so prone to in the church. 
The first church I ever worked at, there was this old lady named Nancy DeFore, and she, I loved her. When I got hired as a, a 31-year-old senior pastor, she asked if they would change my title in the bylaws to lead pastor because she didn't feel comfortable calling someone as young as her grandkids senior pastor. So they changed my title to lead pastor, and, uh, which was totally appropriate. And I remember Nancy, she said, I wrote it down on my notes because she said, um, she, she accused the church of being, of being guilty of over-promising and under-delivering. She said the overpromising rhetoric of Christian culture has to stop. She's like, she was, she was talking about things that, that I would say as a preacher. I would say, hey, we've got to go on this marriage retreat. It'll save your marriage. Or it might not. I never added that part. I would say, this book will change your life. Or maybe it won't. This sermon series is going to revolutionize the way you see God. Or not. And so we have a tendency to use that sort of rhetoric in the Christian church a lot. That's not helpful. It's an overpromising and it's an under-delivering. I think this psalm, in a very profound way, prepares you and me, not only for darkness, but it prepares us for how to walk through the darkness. And it almost just shows us how do we endure prolonged seasons of darkness without answers? Well, we entrust ourselves fully and wholly to God. So to be, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. Bad things can happen to Christians. Darkness can descend upon the godly. You know, we look at the scriptures. We know how it ended for the apostles, the martyrdom and the, the, the persecution and the, the, the horrors that happened to the first early church. But I, honestly, we need to look no further than Jesus. He was truly the only innocent sufferer the world has ever known. He was sinless. And look what he endured on the cross. He did no wrong, and yet he endured darkness the likes of which you and I will never have to face and so I just not to be depressing but just to let you know darkness can deepen dependence on God that's the most depressing part of my sermon darkness can destroy or can descend upon the godly here's here's the two encouraging things I want you here's some things we can cling to today darkness can deepen our dependence on God and dark in fact I think if we walk through darkness the way in which the psalmist is modeling for us by bringing it all to God and entrusting him with it. Darkness can deepen our dependence on God. Oh God, Lord of my salvation, I cry out to you day and night. I mean, as dark as it is, as painful as the perceived abandonment feels, as close to death as this author is, he's calling out to the only one who can save him. I cry out day and night to you. Verse 9, every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you, I, O Lord, cry to you, verse 13. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. He's declaring dependence on the Lord as brutal and as painful and as confusing and as dark as his experience is. He is trusting God with it. He's bringing it all to God. He recognizes the shoulders of God are broad enough to handle his most audacious assaults. He brings it all to God, the contents of his entire heart. Because there's intimacy, there's trust. that It's no longer a transactional relationship for the psalmist. There's something bigger going on here. I've been in this habit the last few weeks of talking with my nieces and my kids and my kids' friends, trying to help them figure out what kind of spouse they want to have. And so I'll say things like, Denver Broncos, Seattle Seahawks. Oh, Seahawks, I could never date a Broncos fan or whatever. And we go through and we ask all these questions. I'll say things like, uh, a vegan or paleo diet? Oh, I could never date a guy that eats only meat, vegan or whatever. And so I've been asking these questions of my kids, trying to get them to think about what kind of future spouse. Mostly playful just to create conversation. But last night we had a little deeper conversation and, I, and I'll, I'll, I'll shorten the conversation. But what I asked my kids essentially and their friend was, okay, would you rather have a spouse who does everything you ever wanted a spouse to do? 
all the chores, clean the house, never get angry, do all the things, but they're sort of indifferent. There's not a lot of interpersonal interaction. There's no passion. But transactionally, it's perfect. Or would you want a spouse who maybe doesn't pick up their underwear from the floor, struggles a little bit with knowing how to do things perfectly, drive you crazy a little bit, but it's undoubted that they love you. They know all of you. There's passion there. There's a deep knowing of one another and a trusting of one another. And without even hesitating, well, that. I want passion. I don't want transaction. I want, I want something real. I want to be able to be real with the person I'm going to spend the rest of my life with. And I think when I look at this, this psalmist just saying, God, ugh, here's all of it. Every ugly thought I have, I am not holding anything back. It is a picture of, of someone who entrusts God with the most intimate and gross details of their life. It's a, it's a picture of, of intimacy and of a deep knowing. And so as brutal and as painful and as confusing and as dark as his experience with, with God is, he's trusting God with all of it. I heard Timothy Keller this week, I heard him speak on this psalm, and he quoted Derek Kidner, who's a commentator. And here's what Derek Kidner said about this psalm. And Keller said this had changed his life when he heard it. And I heard the psalm, and it's simple. Kidner writes, The very presence of these prayers in the Scripture is a witness to God's understanding. God knows how people speak when they're desperate. God has allowed this scripture, like Jeremy said in a staff meeting a couple weeks ago, the blood of the martyrs had been spilled to preserve this word for us today. This is scripture. This is canonized. This, this begging God, this accusing God is canonized. It's scripture. Keller went on to observe that God put these psalms in the scriptures. God didn't say when, and when he, when the author of this psalm, God didn't say, I don't want that in my Bible. No, wrinkle that up, throw it away. Praise, positivity, triumphalism, victory, Heman. No, he said, let that, that raw, desperate, broken petition, let's put that in the scripture. So when my people open this word for thousands and thousands of years, they know they can come to me with anything. God knows how we speak when we're desperate. Keller goes on to, to point out that the God is saying, essentially, I am the God of this man, even though he isn't getting it right. He's saying things that are untrue about me. Even though he's doing that, I am a God of grace. God is saying, I am your God, not because you do everything right, Heman. I am your God because I am a God of grace. So we see that in this text, an observation we can learn from. Darkness can descend upon the godly. Darkness can deepen our dependence upon God. And I know I've said this in the past, but the last thing is that darkness doesn't win, church. We've got to remember that. If you're in the midst of a season, a dark night of the soul, if you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, this is not how the story ends if you're in Christ. Even in the Psalms. The 150 chapters of Psalms are broken up into five books. The first three books, they take us up through the middle of the, the late 90s, early 100s, those all deal with lament but when we get later on in the Psalms, there's this trajectory, there's this movement in this book, this book of prayer, this book of worship. And as we move towards the end of the book of Psalms, we begin to see this focus on the, 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 the future kingdom of God and the, the ultimate victory that is to be had. And the last five Psalms of the book of Psalms are all praise to this God who overcomes death, this victory that we have in him. So this, there's a trajectory in our lives as well. If we scale back even further, we look at all of biblical 
the, all of the scriptures, we know that, that suffering is always followed by glory in the scriptures for those that are faithful. We know that, that, that death precedes resurrection life. We know that darkness comes before the dawn. We know that glory, one day for all the, of us that are found in Christ, when we stand in the presence of Jesus, he wipes every tear from our eye, Revelation 21, and there's no more sorrow, suffering. There's no death, no more pain, no more crying, no more tears. Death and darkness doesn't win for those of us that are in Christ. So in those darkest moments, when we're crying out to God, and all you get is silence, the promise that we have in Christ that darkness doesn't win, that'll keep us on our knees, it'll keep us lifting our prayers even in the darkest of times. And so we see that darkness can descend on the godly, we see that darkness can deepen our dependence upon God, and that darkness doesn't win. Again, would you look to your left and to your right right now? Look around. It's really easy to come and sit under the teaching and go home and not engage in real relationship. There are people in this room today who need you, and there are people in this room who you need. We're, we're made to be interdependent. We're made to, uh, to weep with one another. I know you hear this sort of stuff all the time. I'm not trying to be cliche here, honestly. I just know that we need one another. We need people to lean on in those darkest times in our life. Can we just begin to resolve in our hearts that we're going to be that for each other. And I see it happening at our church in beautiful ways already. I'd love to see that continue to grow in our church, that we, that we shoulder burdens with one another, we walk with one another through the darkest seasons. Timothy Keller, at the end of his teaching that I heard this last week, and he, he, did a, he helped me to see something that I, didn't, that I wouldn't have noticed in this psalm. The author is Heman, the Ezraite. And if we look at First and Second Chronicles and different parts of the Psalms, he plays a prominent figure. He even went on to, to, to author Psalms in the, in the 40s and in the 80s in the book of Psalms. He was part of this, this guild. And like Keller observes, the Psalms are widely received by even non-religious people as some of the greatest works of literary art in all of human history. These incredible works, these incredible works of poetry that speak to the goodness of God, the character of God, and our relationship with him. And so over the course of centuries and millennia, people have sat in the, the psalms that God inspired Heman to write, and they've been profoundly affected. And it's speculative, but I think about the season where Heman was writing this psalm. Who knows what was going on in his life? We're left to wonder. But that's not how the story for Heman ended. However long, months, years, this lasted could it be that this season of walking with God, this chiseling of God, this perfecting by God that came through great lament, through, through prolonged darkness, could it be that that was exactly what God was doing in Heman's life so that he could birth out of him some of the most incredible works, awe-inspiring, Christ-exalting, worshipful works that we still read today? Do you think, do you think when Heman was sitting in a dark spot 3,000 years ago, 3,700 years ago, whenever it was he wrote this, with a quill and a piece of parchment, weeping, his parchment soaked in tears, abandoned, alone, wretched before God, writing out his prayer. Do you think he envisioned this? That all these years later we'd be sitting here encountering God and, and understanding what it means to lament and walk with God through grief and loss? It's incredible when you think about it. As Keller says, Heman thought he was getting total darkness, but Jesus got total darkness, ultimately. Three hours of darkness on the cross. Heman thought he was abandoned, but only Jesus was abandoned. Jesus was abandoned, not only by his friends, but by the Father as well. 
Heman thought he received the wrath of God, but Jesus experienced the full wrath of God. Heman thought that darkness was his only friend, but truly Jesus was the one who understands what it means to have darkness as his only friend. I love how Keller wrapped up his teaching. He says, Jesus Christ experienced darkness as his only friend so that in your darkness you can know Jesus is still your friend. Jesus was truly abandoned so that you will only feel abandoned and you can know that God is still there. God is not going to abandon you because of what Jesus has done. He was abandoned so that you won't have to be. I'm going to invite Teresa in the band up. You know, as we talked about this text as a, as a church, we read through it, and Teresa took it upon herself to, to sit with the psalm and, and put it to melody. So rather than me close in prayer today, I'm going, to have, I'm going to have the song that Teresa wrote for our church be the prayer over us today. One of the reasons we did this sermon series is because we, we want to try to ask the question, how, how does this psalm contribute to the way we think of worship? And I'm sure that, that, is, a, that is something we could plumb the depths of when it comes to lament, to the, you know, for the rest of our lives and never fully exhaust how lament can be a part of our worship. But most basically, what we see here by Heman is utter authenticity. He comes before God as he really is. No pretense, no fake spiritual masks, no hiding. He lays himself bare before God. If our core value is authentic worship, what we see modeled in this psalm is absolute authenticity before God. Would you let the lyrics of Teresa's song be your prayer today? Strength me. 
strong 